On February 16, 1923, archaeologists discovered the tomb of the pharaoh King Tut. Word of this monumental discovery spread like wildfire and led to a surge of Egyptologists and treasure hunters descending into Egypt. One of these researchers was Hamilton M. Wright, who led a massive decade-long clearing project in the Giza Plateau that ended in 1935 when they found something that would shock the world, a large, underground, ancient subway system. Here's what Wright said. We have discovered a subway used by the ancient Egyptians 5,000 years ago. It passes beneath the causeway leading between the second pyramid and the Sphinx. From the subway, we have unearthed a series of shafts leading down more than 125 feet with roomy courts and side chambers. This discovery caused a lot of articles to be published by the mainstream news and academic journals. Until later that same year, Egyptian authorities put a gag order on any stories referring to underground tunnels in Egypt. Then suddenly, the story disappeared, leading to the question, was there any legitimacy to these claims? Surprisingly, yes. In the fifth century BC, Greek historian Herodotus wrote about a journey he took to Egypt where a priest showed him a mysterious underground labyrinth saying, it is hard to believe this was made by man. Near the corner where the labyrinth ends, there's a pyramid, 240 feet in height with carved figures of animals on it and an underground passage by which it can be entered. I was told that these underground chambers connect this pyramid with the pyramids at Memphis. That Memphis he was referring to is known today as the Giza Plateau. 800 years later, Syrian philosopher Iamblichus wrote about an underground tunnel system which could be accessed through the body of the Sphinx. As he said, in the belly of the Sphinx were cut out galleries, leading to the subterranean part of the Great Pyramid. These galleries were so artfully crisscrossed that in setting forth without a guide, one inevitably returned to the starting point. Could any of this actually be true? One man who claimed to know the answer to that question was named Edgar Cayce. Born in 1877, Cayce was an American psychic known as the Sleeping Prophet because he'd literally speak prophecy in his sleep. Throughout his life, he'd make thousands of predictions, and yes, like any psychic, he got a lot of them wrong. However, enough of them came true during his own lifetime that a full-time stenographer was retained to sit next to his bed and write down everything he said. Here are some of the eerie and specific things that Casey predicted. He predicted the stock market would crash in 1929, which it did. He predicted the death of two American presidents, the rise and fall of Hitler, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the 44th president of the United States would be black, and he even predicted his own death on January 1st, 1940 when he said that he would be buried in four days. Three days later, he died of a stroke. But one of his most controversial prophecies is something that's coming true in real time, and it involves the Sphinx. Casey predicted that under the front paws lies a hall of records that would contain the true origins of humanity, and that scientists would discover this hall of records in the 1990s, perfectly preserved, almost like a time capsule. A very bold claim, considering he said this in 1932, three years before Hamilton Wright revealed his findings of an underground subway system. And Casey also said that the Sphinx was not 4,500 years old like scholars believe, but actually dates back 12,000 years around 10,000 BC. Now, according to the mainstream scientists, the Sphinx was built in 2,500 BC. Yet when you look at the reasons why mainstream scholars believe the Sphinx is that old, the evidence starts to fall apart. For instance, it's assumed the Sphinx was built by the Pharaoh Khafre in order to protect the Great Pyramid, which is widely accepted to be the tomb of Khafre's father, Khufu. The crazy part? No no mummy of anyone, let alone Khufu, has ever been found inside of the Great Pyramid. And proponents of the theory will also point to the face of Khafre found on a well-preserved statue of him and say that it looks just like the face on the Sphinx. Yet upon further examination, it becomes obvious that the two faces are actually two completely different people. The most defining feature between these two faces is this angle right here, which measures from the corner of the lips to the corner of the eye. And as you can see on the Sphinx, it's almost double the size of the same angle on Khafre's actual face. 
place. And lastly, there's this stone called the Inventory Stella, which was discovered by a French archaeologist in Egypt during the 1850s. And inscribed into this stone is a record of the Sphinx being repaired by the pharaoh Khufu after it was struck by lightning. The only problem with that, Khufu is Khafre's father, and he was supposed to have been dead by the time the Sphinx was built. So when you think about it, the entire history you've been taught about the Sphinx is based entirely on evidence that's circumstantial at best. And the biggest unanswered question of all is even if they did build the Sphinx in 2500 BC, how the heck did they do it? You see, unlike the pyramids, it wasn't constructed block by block. It was actually sculpted directly out of the bedrock from a single piece of limestone and not with chisels and hammers, but by taking massive limestone blocks directly out of the ground around the Sphinx and then using those blocks like giant Legos to build the nearby temple complex. We know this because the geological layers inside the blocks of the temple complex perfectly matches the geological layers of the walls around the Sphinx. Some of these blocks measure 30 feet long, 10 feet high, and 12 feet wide, and weigh about 200 tons each. And not to mention, they also supposedly did this with nothing more than ropes, pulleys, and ramps. Which brings us back to Edgar Cayce's prediction, which seemed to account for this mystery as well. Because he also claimed that Atlantis, the mythical advanced civilization which sunk into the ocean, was actually real. And he said the full history of Atlantis would be revealed once and for all on scrolls that are located inside the Hall of Records under the Sphinx. Now, if you're like most people, you probably heard the word Atlantis and immediately wrote this guy off as crazy. But if you could open your mind for one second and consider where the myth of Atlantis actually came from in the first place, you'll realize that it all traces back to the writings of the Greek philosopher Plato, where Plato described Atlantis as an advanced ancient civilization that existed 9,000 years before his own time and was founded by beings that were half God and half human. Because Plato's account of Atlantis is the only known record of it ever existing, it's always been assumed that this story was myth and not reality. Even though Plato himself never said it wasn't real, all he said was that he heard the story through his conversations that he'd had with various poets and priests. And one of these conversations he spoke of was with the Greek lawmaker Solon, where Solon was telling Plato about the time that he went to Egypt to network with one of the Egyptian high priests. And apparently the Egyptian priest had asked Solon to tell him about the history of the Greek people. So Solon told him, in the beginning, humans were created. Then there was a big flood, a big catastrophe. And after that, they were created again. And after he said that, the Egyptian priest began laughing, which confused Solon. So the priest went on to explain, there have been many devastations in the long history of the world, and the earth has been repopulated many times over the course of millions of years. You Greeks only remember the last one, but there have been many before that. You've lost the record of these earlier histories, and we have those records. Could this priest have been referring to those same records that Edgar Cayce was talking about? To answer that question, we've got to fast forward to the 1990s when Edgar Cayce said this would all go down. The great Sphinx of Egypt, keeper of the ancient mysteries, guardian of the ancient secrets. The Sphinx is considered to be the greatest statue on Earth. In 1991, American Egyptologist and geologist Robert Schock conducted a series of studies taking seismic surveys around the Sphinx. The results of these studies were so groundbreaking that an hour-long NBC documentary called The Mystery of the Sphinx was created and watched by more than 30 million people on primetime television. In the documentary, Wes and Schock presented their findings from studying the erosion patterns on the walls around the Sphinx. When you look at the Sphinx with a geological eye, this was not weathered by wind and sand. Weston Schock noted the erosion patterns look nothing like sand and wind erosion, but are actually identical to extreme water erosion. Here you see all these joints. You don't see the same type of joints in the wind-induced weathering. This is textbook example of what happens to a limestone wall when you have rains beating down on it for thousands of years. So how on earth could there be this much water erosion 
been around the Sphinx when the area has been the Sahara Desert for the last 5,000 years. At first, you might think that maybe this is caused from Nile River flooding over the years. It's not floods coming up from the bottom. Geologically, that will give a very different signature on the rock. It's actually rainfall runoff coming from above. And surprisingly, no other geologists could even refute these findings, even if they wouldn't admit it publicly. Just look at what John Anthony West said. Through some friends, I had an introduction to a very well-known Oxford geologist, and I went to him with a very simple question. On the basis of a clear photograph alone, could he, as a geologist, tell the difference between weathering by water and weathering by wind and sand? The answer was cautiously expressed as a general rule, yes. I asked him if he didn't mind if I play a bit of a trick on him, and what I did was I took a photograph of the Sphinx and I masked off the head and paws, and I asked him what did he think was responsible for that weathering? And he looked at it for a moment and said, well, unquestionably water. And then I stripped the masking tape off and he looked at it for a minute and said, oh. And if this is in fact water erosion, given the level of erosion that exists, the Sphinx must date back to a time when the area was not the Sahara Desert, but was actually very wet with heavy water precipitation. Either this was a weird geological anomaly or the Sphinx might go back to an earlier period. And the last time conditions fit that criteria was around the end of the last ice age 12,000 years ago. What we had ending the last ice age was huge climatic changes which put a lot of moisture into the air which came down as precipitation with huge thunderstorms etc and I think a lot of the erosion that we still see on the walls of the Sphinx enclosure go back to that period. According to what we know about history 12,000 years ago people were living in small groups of hunter-gatherers the exact opposite of a society you'd think would be capable of creating the largest monolith on planet earth to date and in the words of John Anthony West the proof that the Sphinx precedes dynastic Egypt by many thousands of years means there was at some distant past sophisticated civilizations. And water erosion wasn't their only surprising find. They also found what seemed to be a large room-sized cavity under the left front paw of the Sphinx. We were not looking for structures under the Sphinx. I was actually looking for subsurface mineralogical changes, but we found some structures. Most importantly, we found a chamber under the left paw. Surprisingly, when West and Shock revealed these findings in their documentary and word of an undiscovered room under the Sphinx started to spread, the Egyptian authorities immediately banned them from continuing their research altogether. And the man responsible for getting them banned was this guy, Zahi Hawass. I am Zahi Hawass. When I do archaeology, you listen to me. Shut up. I don't want to tell you what to do or I will leave. His official title is the Minister of Antiquities, but that basically just means that he's the spokesperson for what we're supposed to accept the history of ancient Egypt is. And in his words, Weston Shock's research was nothing more than American hallucinations. This next part, I can't even make up. In 1996, a year after banning John Anthony West and Robert Schock from studying the Sphinx, a new $10 million project for digging the ground around the Sphinx was approved by the Egyptian government and was led by none other than Zahi Hawass himself. And to build up some hype around the project, they released a teaser video with the star Zahi Hawass entering tunnels under the Sphinx with not one mention of these American hallucinations. And the video showed Hawass entering the Sphinx through a hole, which led down into an underground tunnel. And once inside, Hawass joyfully exclaimed on camera, even Indiana Jones will never dream to be here. Can you believe it? We are now inside the Sphinx in this tunnel. No one really knows what's inside this tunnel, but we are going to open it for the first time. And this is where the teaser
teaser ends, leaving many to wonder what the heck did they find in that tunnel? Because two years after the project began, Hawass again reversed his position as he abruptly shut down the project and became adamant that there was absolutely nothing under the Sphinx. Nothing is hidden underneath the Sphinx what you believe it's nonsense going so far to even deny the existence of holes that go into the sphinx altogether which is kind of crazy because it's actually well documented that there are holes going into the sphinx like this hole on top of the head which is currently sealed shut with concrete or this hole covered by a block with a tunnel clearly leading under the sphinx and this hole on the back which zahi himself is on video looking down into but when asked about these chambers all he says is we already looked and there's nothing down there it's probably a shaft that was put there by treasure hunters really a useless shaft from low-life treasure hunters doesn't seem to add up to me. I mean, if this truly was the case, then why not at least show us some picture or video proof? Why block off the holes entirely and ban anyone else from going down there? And why, with so much evidence to the contrary, is it still accepted fact that the Sphinx was built 4,500 years ago? We cannot sensibly accept the insistence of Egyptologists that the Sphinx is just four and a half thousand years old. In the 90s, the rebuttal to any evidence suggesting otherwise was always, if it was built by a civilization or a culture that much earlier, where is the other evidence of this culture showing you any archaeological site that dates to this period? Well, that got blown out of the water completely by the discovery of Gobekli Tepe. Located in Turkey, Gobekli Tepe was discovered by accident when a shepherd stumbled over a bunch of these old-looking stones sticking out of the ground of this hillside. For many years, it was assumed to be nothing more than a medieval cemetery, and it wasn't until 1994 when German archaeologist Klaus Schmidt began studying the site that a lot of other scientists started to take it more seriously. Because once they started excavating the site, it was found to contain large circular structures supported by massive stone pillars, each weighing 7 to 10 tons, standing 18 feet high, with many of these stones stacked on top of each other. And most mysteriously of all, it seems to have all been deliberately buried in the ground all at once, as if to preserve it or hide it altogether. And due to carbon dating of materials at the site, modern scientists have irrefutably dated it back to around 12,000 years ago. Meaning this site predates ancient Sumeria, the invention of writing, and Stonehenge by more than 6,000 years. To put that into perspective, there was about as much time between the construction of Gobekli Tepe and the construction of Stonehenge as there was between the construction of Stonehenge and today, making Gobekli Tepe the oldest known megalithic site in the world. And that's not all. Many of these stone pillars have 3D animals carved directly out of the pillar with extreme precision and detail, and created at a time when the most advanced form of art was supposed to just be pictures drawn onto the side of caves with mud. It's also believed that these pillars represent stylized versions of human beings, since many of the top stones have what seem to be faces carved into them. An eerie fact when you consider where else you've seen the dichotomy of an animal body with a human head. 11,600 years old, a giant megalithic site. My goodness, if you can make Gobekli Tepe, you can make the Sphinx. And due to the fact that Gobekli Tepe proves the existence of an advanced ancient civilization capable of creating monoliths, this site has become the smoking gun evidence that the Sphinx likely is much older than we've been led to believe. And the dates when both of these sites were likely created lines up perfectly with the end of the last ice age. That is the date where it starts at Gobekli Tepe and precisely the date Plato gives for the destruction of Atlantis. So if Plato made it up, it's really weird that he picked a date that precisely coincides with the latest geological evidence on cataclysmic sea level rise at the end of the ice age. That is, unless you ask Zahi Hawass, which is exactly what happened on April 15th, 2015, when Zahi was invited to participate in a pre-arranged academic debate with Graham Hancock, who's the author of the book Fingerprints of the Gods, which first popularized Gobekli Tepe. The room would be full of academics and Egyptologists, and both Zahi and Graham would get an hour
hour to present uninterrupted before opening it up to audience Q&A. And Hawass agreed to participate on one condition, that he would get to present second after watching what Graham presents first. Unfortunately, the event didn't go as planned because as soon as Zahi arrived, Graham was setting up his slides and he saw one slide in particular that really set him off. Don't talk to me, please. And it was a slide that contained the picture of a man named Robert Bavall. Robert Bavall turned his attention to the stars. He also dates the Sphinx to 10,500 BC. Now, Bavall famously pointed out the connection with Orion's belt to the three pyramids of Giza, as well as the constellation Leo with the Sphinx. The man is an amateur. The man should go and teach him a children's school. And according to Graham, here's what happened when Zahi saw this slide. Zahi saw Robert Bavall's image and became furiously angry, shouting at me, making demeaning comments about Robert. This man did back to and told me that if I dared to mention a single word about Robert in my talk, he would walk out and refuse to debate me. Then Zahi marched out of the room. Even before a word is exchanged, Negotiations took place offstage and finally Zahi agreed to give his talk and answer questions from the audience, but he refused to see my talk or engage in any debate with me. Why is talking about the kid that has been what Graham didn't mention, though, is what happened during the Q&A portion of Zahi's talk, when the lady in the audience, who was unaware of what transpired before the debate, innocently asked him a question about his thoughts on the recent findings of Gobekli Tepe. Do you have a position on what impact any Gobekli Tepe has had? To which he responded by acting as if he'd never heard of Gobekli Tepe at all. At this moment, it kind of got awkward, so Graham started to chime in and add clarification to why Gobekli Tepe may be a relevant question to ask. And Zahi's response? But pay attention to his word choice. He says phrases like, I don't think, and in my opinion. And let me ask you, since when has science ever been based on opinion? And before even finishing his thought, he gets someone else to try to finish his answer as he retreats to the back of the room and sits down. Now, I'm no body language expert, but why would one simple question cause a man to get so flustered that he has to retreat to the back of the room and take a seat as he nervously wipes sweat off of his face? I think the answer is obvious. He was subconsciously avoiding the question. And that's when Zahi said something that, in my opinion, should discredit anything he's ever said when he blurted out. No, man, Hold up, if you don't believe in radar, then why are you quote, using it in all of your work? Believe it or not, I'm not mad at Zahi. I'm not even mad at the Egyptian government. If anything, I'm fascinated. What on earth could be so ground shattering that people will go to any length, even denying scientific data with nothing more than their opinion to cover this up? And the unfortunate answer to that question is that Zahi is just one in the long line of many people who have been tasked with maintaining this mainstream narrative. For over a hundred years, there's been rumors of an Egyptian mafia controlling the flow of information regarding Egypt's past. One account goes all the way back to the 1830s, only a few years after the Sphinx was even dug out of the ground, where a team of French engineers was exploring the grounds around the Sphinx and had apparently discovered a doorway leading underground. Shortly after this, they were confronted by shadowy figures which forced them to stop their research altogether. And today, if you visit the Sphinx, you'll see that the ground around the Sphinx is largely flat bedrock, except for directly between the two front paws of the Sphinx, where floorboards have been placed over what 
seems to be tiles. And these tiles, interestingly enough, were not carved into the bedrock just for aesthetic reasons. They were actually placed there at the same elevation of the rest of the ground around it. And you'll notice that these floorboards have also been there since the 1800s when the Sphinx was dug out of the ground. Could these tiles actually be the roof of a chamber under the Sphinx? Could these floorboards have been placed there in modern times to cover up the tiles altogether? And if so, could this be an archive from Atlantis? I guess only time will tell. And speaking of covering things up, just wait until you see this video right here where I talk about quite possibly the biggest one of all, JFK's UFO connection. You understand nothing because you are nothing.